Well, thank you. I don't know whether to look here or just look in the mirror. <laughs> Bless the Lord's love. It's lovely to be here. I thank you for the opportunity to come and share with you. When I was saved on the 1st of August 1971, which was an awful long time ago, people all over the world were taking trips to discover themselves, to find themselves. A few years after that, if you had asked me, who are you, I would have said, Ison, Warren, Sergeant, 1738803. But that's not me. One of the most difficult things for people in general is to be able to identify themselves. You know, who are you? And we've been singing about that tonight. But I want to talk about that. Who are you? And I want to start with me because um, really I could be almost anybody. You wouldn't know. Some of you know me, but not many. My name is Warren Ison. My middle name is George. Don't blame me for that. It was my father's family's idea. That was a name given to me by my parents and my ancestors. The surname is Ancestors. And just so that you know, because it's really important, Ison indicates that I come from a Viking family that settled in northern France or Normandy and went across to England with William the Conqueror. Or as I told my children, you remember the story of Robin Hood? We were the baddies. Warren means protector or protecting friend. And I am absolutely convinced my parents didn't have a clue about that when they named me. But of course it's true anyway. What do names mean? So many cultures in the world, when you're born you're given a name or in some places a number. And when you reach a mature age and your personality is obvious, then you're renamed to indicate the sort of person that you are. Are you, are you with me so far? Yeah? So what does a name mean? Not a whole lot. I'm an ordained minister of the gospel. I've pastored for some 30 years. Does that tell you who I am? Well, it doesn't say how well I did. It doesn't tell you whether the people like me. It doesn't tell you whether the Lord was pleased with me. So again, it doesn't say much, really, does it? Give me another three or four years and you can call me Reverend Doctor. How's that? Does that tell you a lot? Well, obviously you're brilliant. No, no, I'm just too stubborn to quit. That's what it is. To Anne, I'm a husband. Okay, that's interesting. To Lauren, Christy, and Joshua, I'm a father. To Daniel, Storm, Lucas, and... Uh, who have I missed? Aurora, Lucas, and Omeya, I'm pa. Granddad. To many, I'm a teacher, and to a few, I'm a student. Does that say who I am? They're all peripheral things, but there's a couple of things that stand out. Two common factors in all of those. Every single one of them had to do with relationships. Every single one. Some philosophers suggest that without relationships, you have no identity, you have nothing without relationships. 
Here's the second thing. All of them are insufficient. I may be Warren Eisen, husband, father, grandfather, ordained minister, teacher, student, and 1738803, but is that really me? Does my name define me? Does it mean anything? How many people are really impressed that I come from ancestors who are Vikings? See, on both sides, would you believe it? My mother's family name was Kelk. Does ordained minister identify me? Well, some ordained ministers are truly men of God. And others are anything but. I mean, I knew one ordained man who was a fantastic person, wonderful social worker. The, the only problem was he wasn't a Christian. He just saw the ministry as being a good way to help people. Will the title husband or father really identify me throughout eternity? My children have all left home. Not because they got tired of us. They got older <laughs> and left home. They're all married. So am I still father the same way that I was 20 years ago? Can you see the issue? It doesn't really define me. And those sorts of things don't define you either. In 20 years' time, if I'm still around here, how many people will think of me as teacher? Probably not many, although some may be looking at photographs of their old college days might think that. When I finish my current range of studies, will that make me a better person? Will the Lord be pleased with me? Will he turn up at my graduation and whistle and cheer and clap and stomp his feet? And someone said the only constant in life is change. And there's a whole school of theology, by the way, that grew around that thought. But I've observed something. Not all the changing life situations are necessarily positive. Let, let me illustrate that. Many professionals and business people, when they retire, lose their whole reason for existence. They're nobody anymore. I made a joke before about, what was it, who's, oh that's right, you make him important or does he make you important? Now it was a joke, but let's think about this for a minute. How many people find their meaning in I am the wife of or I am the husband of? Which means that you are only ever defined by one person standing in community. Some parents, especially mothers, when their children grow up and leave home, no longer know who they are and how they fit in society. When my last child left home, my wife went out and bought two dogs, her fur children. <sighs> Made me feel really important. But there's a sense of, who am I now? What, what, what's my life all about? Do you know what I'm saying? Pastors, I have known pastors who retired from ministry and simply stopped attending church. That worried me. 
Missionaries who return from, their, from the mission field return to their home country and they become bitter people. It's not at all uncommon. Students whose academic brilliance is not recognised by society and they become bitter old people complaining about everybody because their brilliance wasn't given its due recognition. Or gifted people who become dissatisfied with their role in community, always striving for position which in fact disqualifies them from that position. And they become angry people. Their potential never recognised. What's the problem in all of those? We're looking for other people to give us an identity. Can you see that? There is where the problem lies. Now when you look at the New Testament, how do the people there define themselves? How did Paul define himself? Do you remember reading, uh, for example, Romans 1.1? How does it begin? That letter, along with almost every other letter he wrote. Paul, a follower, a disciple, uh, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's Romans 1.1. When he was talking about Timothy, it's Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. You notice something? It's still relationship, but the relationship is with somebody whose opinion really matters and is eternal. James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter in 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1.1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I don't think they got a hold of one of Paul's letters and just changed the name on the beginning of it. They're all identifying themselves with their relationship with Christ. And it all comes down to this concept of a servant of Jesus Christ. Now there's a couple of differences. In Philemon, Paul says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That tells you a little bit further, doesn't it? Or 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that the only lasting, the only reliable, the only real way to define ourselves is through our relationship with God himself, with Jesus. That's something that is going to last forever. That's a relationship that is solid and stable. Because if you set a relationship with another person, how many people know that sometimes other people can let you down? And, and that sometimes the other people that let you down is in fact us. We're the letties, not the letters. Or, oh, I think that makes sense. It's not stable. It's not reliable. It's not... It puts a tremendous pressure on that other person to be perfect in that relationship 
all the time. Anne and I were married on the 1st of February, 1974, which makes next year a very expensive year for me. But rubies aren't any good on their own. It's got to be surrounded by diamonds. Yeah, I, I have yet to figure out why on a, on a big anniversary the wife gets the jewellery and the husband gets the bill. I'm not quite sure how that works yet and she's not telling me either. It's a very effective... But you know, she really loves me. Can you see that as being miraculous? I can. <laughs> Does she love me all the time? I'm asking you an impossible question, but have a guess. Probably not. Sometimes she'll say, I love you, but at this precise moment in time, I can't stand you. Go away and talk to me tomorrow. I'm always innocent, of course. But what I'm saying is, how can you expect one person to be absolutely, completely wrapped in you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 or 366 days a year, for the rest of your entire life, which, by the way, goes on forever. It's not fair. Only someone who is eternal and who changes not can do that. So what defines me? What defines you? Here's something to begin with. I'll pick on me, okay? But when you hear I, read you as well. I am redeemed. Good word, what does it mean? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Didn't we sing something like that tonight? Yeah. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Redeemed, what does it mean? I used to love this. In the old days, Christians would be singing, Redeemed how I love to declare it. What does it mean? I don't know. What does it mean? Hmm? Bought with a price. Bought back. Set free. Set free. Purchased. And set free. I'm redeemed. You are redeemed. Now that stands the test of time. Here's the second one. And this is really important to me. I am forgiven. Romans 4, 7 to 8 says, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You are forgiven. Now, is anyone here that's never had anything in their life that they needed to be forgiven for? Live perfect lives? Because you can tune out at this stage. It doesn't apply. We've been forgiven. What does that mean? Forgiven. It's not held against us. I had someone say to me, it's like this, it's like this. There's a book of life, and when you sin, there's a little cross against your name. And so forgiven means that the angel comes along with an eraser and rubs out the cross. What do you reckon? Yeah, it sounded all right. 
And then I thought, if you've ever seen me write and you rub it out, you can see where the mark has been. Not only has he forgiven us, but he has cast all our sins into, I'm going like this, and I was going to say the sea of his forgetfulness. And over his back, in the small of his back, where you can't see it, into the sea of his, his forgetfulness, he can't remember it. It's gone completely. Now let me illustrate how this works, because it's, it's pretty unusual. Many years ago, I decided as a pastor, if I was going to hold account for everybody who hurt me or did something stupid, because I'm always innocent, someone else did it. But if I held that against them, I'd have to have a huge list of people I had things against. And I decided that wasn't healthy. So I developed the ability to forget. Now, I'd love to say I forgave everybody. That was a little bit beyond me, but I could manage to forget. I have developed a brilliant forgettery. And it was so effective that after a time, this happened to me. Someone came up. It was a, it was a party. I hadn't seen this person for years. And this, uh, this guy came up. He said, look, I really want to apologize for, for what I said and did all those years ago. And I looked at him and thought, what are you talking about? Um, I can't remember it. Will you forgive me? Well, there's nothing to forgive. I can't remember it. When God looks at you, there's nothing to remember. We're forgiven. Now that's pretty good. I'm a member, thirdly, of the body of Christ, God's family, a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. Wherever I go in the world, I can join with a group of believers, and we're family. They may sing songs I don't know. I didn't know any of those songs before tonight. Isn't that great? We might do things differently. Um, our church hasn't got a wall of mirrors. I think that's fantastic. I could really go for that. I went to a college and they, they bought an old reception centre, a guest house, and they had pillars in the middle of what was going to be the chapel and it had those little tiny square mirrors all around. The principal went and removed them. I couldn't believe it. I reckon leave the mirrors there, leave the coloured flashing lights around the place. That would be great for chapel. Oh, let's all get excited and the light starts flashing. I mean, that is really good. I don't know, old-fashioned guy, I don't know. But we're all part of the same body of Christ. We have this sense of belonging. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19 to 21 says we're no longer foreigners. We're not aliens. But we're citizens with God's people and members of God's household. That makes Jesus what? Not just my Lord, but my brother. Elder brother. An elder brother in this community has a significant role to play. He's the one who made the way. He's the one who leads. And I just have to follow. Isn't that brilliant? Fourth, I'm a child of God. Scripture says in 1 John 3, the first two verses, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Now the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Now, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to be just like him. That's, I find that really exciting. In that upper room, after the resurrection, he came through a locked door. That's neat. He appeared before people on the road. They didn't recognize him. That's pretty incredible. 
He can be anywhere he wants. When he left, which way did he go? That's great. We're going to be like him. That's our identity. I went to a conference in Adelaide once, and oh dear me. You know you go to conferences and they want you to, to, to talk positively about yourself. That's one of the things. And so they told us we had to go home that night. It was an Australian Pentecostal Fellowship conference. We had to go home that night, stand in front of the mirror, and say, you can do it. You are successful. You know, all that sort of stuff. Now, I went home. They had me hosted in the University of Adelaide because the students were away. So they just took over students' rooms. And I was in this room, and it was a girl's room. And it was a very short girl's room. And how did I know that? Well, to, to look at my face in the mirror, I had to kneel. So here I am, kneeling in front of a mirror saying, you can do it. You are great. You look like a fool. <laughs> now, that's not what it's about. We're the children of God. I have to look in the mirror to say that. Just have to look in his face and know that. And if we're children, we are also heirs. Heirs of God. Wow, Romans 8, 16 and 17. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Mm. I like the first part of the verse. Someone else can have the second part. I don't like the idea of suffering. Anyone like that with me? When I go to doctors and they say, you know, are you allergic to anything? And I say, yes, pain. If I suffer pain... My legs start walking like this really fast, and I, I'm gone. I'm allergic to pain. I don't like suffering, do you? But you see, if we're believers, there's going to be those times of suffering in our lives. It may be because of the gospel. It may be because of our own stupidity. But even then, there's the evidence of our sonship, our heirship. We are his heirs. I'm a disciple of Christ. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 talks about making disciples of all nations. How many are disciples? So I've got a son who's a believer but not yet a disciple. So he believes in Jesus. And I have to, you know, I have to believe he's going to heaven. But he's not really a disciple. There's a, there's a step that he hasn't taken yet. A step of total surrender. One day he will. I know it. He knows it. And of course the Lord knows everything. A disciple of Christ. When I first got saved, this is just before I went into the army. And so my early form formative years as a Christian, I was in uniform. And so I developed, I think it was because of that at least, I developed a concept of what discipleship was. A disciple was somebody who stood to attention when his commander-in-chief gave him orders. So my concept was, prayer is, I'm here. Present. Commander, what are your orders? And I worked on the premise, whatever he said, I would do. I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So for years I lived this principle of military service for the king. 
part of his army. We sang about that too. And it's, it's a really good um, metaphor. So I'm one of his soldiers. And I, I have a, a sword. It's a two-edged sword, isn't it? In fact, it's even sharper than that. I have a shield, and it's the shield of... Do you remember? Faith. I wear a breastplate of righteousness. I have special boots that are the, the gospel of peace, you know? I'm wearing all this. I've got the belt here that's the belt of truth. So I'm dressed and I'm ready. In fact, I heard a preacher once say every morning when you get out of bed, you should put on the armor. So for a little while, not too long, I'd get up in the morning and, and put on the boots and put on the breastplate and pick up the shield and pick up the sword and thinking, yeah, I'm ready for the day. Well, I don't know. I, don't, I hope nobody saw me. I look pretty silly. Here's the thing, though. We are soldiers of Christ. Yes? Years and years passed. And I'd go to special meetings. They'd have altar calls. And other people would be down on their knees and blubbering. I would never blubber. Right? Because I'm a soldier. If you suffer pain, you suck it up. Right? So they would be down on their knees or flat on their faces, and I'd be standing at attention, waiting for orders. And then one day someone played me a song. And the song said, Soldier standing on the battle line. And I, I can't remember all the words exactly, but it's talking about the soldier in his armour having fought the battle and at the end of the day is still standing. And there are wounded and dead all around, but the soldier stands. Well, I thought, yeah, I like this. This is a good song. Ooh. And then the chorus came. I've got it actually on my iPad. If you're interested, I'll play it for you. <laughs> it had an impact. Yes, you're a mighty soldier. But just remember, you're still my child. That shook me. See, a disciple isn't just a soldier. A disciple is a child who walks with his daddy and is confident in him, depends on him. Yeah, and there are times when we have to stand on the battle line. We have to stand up. We have to, to take the pressure that comes against us. We have to fight back with the sword of the Spirit. Yeah, I believe that. But when the battle's over, we're kids again. Am I making sense? That's who we are. You see, I, I thought as a Christian I had my identity down pat, but I only had this part of it. Will you give me time? Another couple of minutes? Let me tell you what happened. I, I was, I'm not a Vietnam vet. The army, it was during Vietnam War, but the army sent me to Papua New Guinea to help prepare the military there for independence. Um, we did expect to be attacked there. We expected Indonesia to invade. It was that time. And... So I, I knew I was doing a good job. I, I loved my time there, developed great relationships. One of the guys who was a second lieutenant later on became a major general and eventually became the prime minister of the country. 
And I felt like, yes, we've got a part to play in this whole country. It's just brilliant. But throughout my life, there was this sense of something was wrong. I was a Christian already. What's wrong here? And you know what it was? I felt guilty. Now, anyone a veteran? I felt guilty that I didn't go to Vietnam. Now, when, when I was finishing recruit training, um, we all prayed, Lord, what do you want us to do? Because um, I know good Christians are pacifists, but I didn't measure up. I knew that if I was in a, mili- in a warfare situation, someone was coming at me and at my mates shooting, I would shoot back. And I qualified as marksman. So I would kill. I didn't want to have to face that. Lord, what do I do? And the army said, we want education people. I was a school teacher. So I applied, did all the tests. Anyway, I sent that, but I felt guilty that I didn't go to Vietnam with some of my mates. You with me? It's, it's actually called survivor guilt. And I was in a theatre, we watched a movie. Um, the movie, uh, what was it called? Uh, we Were Soldiers, Mel Gibson. And at the end, obviously Mel Gibson is su- suffering survivor guilt. And he was saying, you know, yes, we won the battle, but I survived. And the movie finished. And the lights came up. I mean, what do you do as soon as the credits roll at a movie? You leave, don't you? I'm still sitting there. My wife's looking at me thinking, what's wrong with you? I couldn't move. I felt so, that's me. That's what's happened. That's why, while I'm being tough, yet a silly little ad about a puppy comes on and I feel like crying. I'd have tears and not understand why they were there. Psychotic, actually. I needed professional help. So the movie finished. I'm still sitting there. And I looked around and scattered through the audience. There were still men, my same age, still sitting there. And I realized something. I had not been living as a disciple. Even as a military disciple. Because I'd said, what's your will? He sent me to a place that was safe. Isn't that God's purpose? I knew that what I did was valuable, but I didn't appreciate it. And I felt this guilt. I said this to a Vietnam vet. Um, he, was, he fought in one of the most serious battles that Australian soldiers were involved in. And he looked at me and said, are you mad? Um, Yes. You don't want to be there. And I look at this guy and think, yes, if that's the result of it, no, I don't want to be there. Because he suffered. I had to discover something about God's will. Am I free of that now? Yes, I am. I can talk about it. Did you notice I didn't cry once? I couldn't have done that when I first started because I get all teary every time, get a catch in the throat. But I have discovered that God's will is the most perfect thing in every single dimension. I am where I am today because of his direction in my life. I'm a disciple. I think that's crucial to our self-understanding. 
And there's one more title that's probably really good. It's from Acts 11.26. It happened in the city of Antioch, which was the beginning of mission to Europe and so forth. It says that disciples were first called Christians. There. So it doesn't matter whether I'm Ison Warren, Sergeant 1738803, teacher, student, or anything else. I am Jesus' child. I am a son of God. I'm an heir of Christ. I am a disciple. And I am called by him. And that is my identity. And everything else, while it might be important, is secondary to that. Now, I've, I've got to finish with a little poem. Does anyone not know the man or the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a minister and the principal of a Bible school in Germany at the beginning of World War II. And while the vast majority of German Christians called themselves that, German Christians, they, they accepted what Adolf Hitler was telling them, that the Führer was also the Führer of the church, so the leader of the church, and that everything he said was God's plan and purpose. He was the great prophet. But a whole bunch of them said, that's a load of um, rubbish. And they called themselves the Confessing Church. He was one of them. He was a very significant individual in the community. Not only was he a, a, a reverend and a, and a principal of a Bible school and everything else, his family were minor nobility in the land. His uncle was the military governor of Berlin. So they're a very significant family. But he had a grandmother. Grandmothers are wonderful people. And when uh, the, the Nazi party there announced that no one would buy, was allowed to go and buy anything from a Jewish shop, she stood up instantly and said, no one's going to tell me where I can buy things, and immediately went down to the local corner stop, shop owned by a Jew and did her shopping. So they had this impact in his life. Now, as a Christian, uh, when he discovered what was happening in those concentration camps, he didn't know what to do. This furor cannot be allowed to continue. But how do you stop? There's no political process. So what's the option? So he joined in with a, a group of like-minded people to assassinate Hitler. He was not going to be the trigger man or the man that carried the bomb, but he knew about it and was aware of it. You remember the story about the guy, the military officer who took the bomb in a briefcase and put it under the table? No? And Hitler only just escaped because the table was so strong. He was involved in that. And so the Gestapo came and arrested him, put him in jail. Now, the end of the story, and I will get back to the point. The end of the story is uh, it was either one or two days before um, American troops would have reached to set him free, he was executed. He had such an impact on his guards, which were regular army troops, that they removed them and replaced them with SS so they could execute him, because the military guard would not. They treated him with such incredible respect. So here's this godly man in prison, expecting to be executed, for being involved in a plot to assassinate the one who killed millions 
And how does he reconcile that with the gospel? It's difficult, isn't it? So while he was in prison, he wrote a number of letters, and, and you can buy them in a book. It's called, um, is it called Letters from Prison. Brilliant story. There's a movie made about it too. One of the things he did was he wrote this poem. It's entitled, Who Am I? Who am I? They often tell me I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They also tell me I would talk to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I would bear the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colours, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighbourliness, trembling with anger at despotisms and petty humiliation, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once? A hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Everything else, gone. I am thine. I am yours. So let me read what I wrote and by way of conclusion. Who are you? Are you a follower? Worshipper? Disciple of Jesus Christ? Does the word, the name Christian adequately define you? Is Christ the center and the defining element of your life? That's the question for us. Who am I? Who are we? In his presence, we find our real identity.